joining me for quite excellent episode number 70. It has been a small stretch since our last episode, but that tends to be the way of things in the second semester. Our units are denser, our time is shorter, our opportunities for this ongoing project, which is a delight of my year, though it does complicate it. Those are running out too. This might be the last of the year, but I'm glad to be back to it because my students have only further demonstrated their development in identifying insightful ideas living in the language of poetry. Before we get started, I want to note that there was a comment left on the last episode on LatinTeachers.com that appeared to be from the poet Anna Scotti, whose poem Whisk we talked about last episode. And I don't know for certain that this was her, but it certainly made my morning. She said that she was impressed by my students and the work they have done and their knowledge of poetry. May not be real at all, but on the off chance it is. How cool is that? And if it's not, I still had a great morning as a result. So thank you, Anna Scotty, or the Anna Scotty imposter. Brief interruption, I actually heard back from Anna Scotty, and it turns out that was her. She was impressed with my students, and I am so excited for them. Anyway, back to the episode. Today's poem is titled Special Problems in Vocabulary by Tony Hoagland, and can be found in his collection Application for Release of the Dream, although I first found it from the Poetry Foundation website. I thought this poem would be a great place to go next, because we've had a fair number of narrative poems, and when we do, students often explore them from a greater distance than I think poetry sometimes really requires. They see the character as a novel or film and so want to dissect it to make each item symbolic. There's certainly room for that, but sometimes the objects and places and people are primarily objects and places and people. Not metaphors or thoughts or emotions, but tangible experiential elements that are connected with the character's emotions and thoughts, but not a figment of them. In considering today's poem, I hope students see more of themselves or the people around them. While the poem still has a speaker, and it may be that the speaker is suggesting a number of true experiences without specific chronological action in a defined setting, I'm hoping students might be able to connect with what is honest about the poem. I'm jumping way ahead, though. Before we can explore our next poem, we must revisit the previous one that students explored, The Bats. Read by me this time. The Bats by Mark Wunderlich I share my house with a colony of bats. They live in the roof peak, enter through a gap. At dusk, they fly out a dip into inverted arcs to catch what flutters or stings what could only be hunted at night. Sunlight stops their flight, drives them into their hot chamber to rest and nest troll faces pinched shut. They hear them scratch. In darkness, they chop and hazard through the sky around blue outlines of pines pitch up over the old Dutch house we share. They scare some, but not me. I see them for what they seem. Timid. We. Happy or lucky, pinned to the roof beams, stitched up in their ammonia reek and private as dreams. As is always the case, student analysis was great, but I had so much great stuff that I legitimately had a hard time composing and putting it together and structuring it. 
it was a task. It was a, a Jenga board of sticky notes. Um, but the thing I wanted to start with is that an essential element of the bats and bats in general, I think, is the negative association that frequently goes with them. One student noted how uh, Halloween is connected with them and as a result, some fear and scariness and things like that. One student writes, We know bats as nighttime creatures with an amazing sense of night vision, but often a nuisance and sometimes a danger. And I think this idea right here is a perfect jumping off point because the danger and the evocative theatrical Halloween elements of bats, I think, made it really easy for students to explore bats as fictional figments, imaginary things. A student writes that in the narrative poem, The Bats, by Mark Wunderlich, the speaker uses telling details to portray a fantasy of living with bats as a coping mechanism for their loneliness. They continue, Although the speaker provides many details about the bats, including their environment and behaviors, we can infer that this is merely a figment of the speaker's imagination. The narrator describes the bats as private as dreams, implying that these bats are only an occurrence in their life and no one else's, thus proving the whole poem to be the narrator's fantasy. Another builds on this, saying that the speaker uses bats to convey his mental illness and how it affects him, saying his mind is split in two, one half himself, the other a darker version, the bats. Another writes, The bats are his emotions, they are his lifeline, he can view them with love even if no one else does. And finally, student writes that although his thoughts scare some, they do not scare him, they are his. We have definitely had our fair share of poems that maybe encourage us to doubt our speakers. But when I read this, I didn't do that. So I was surprised by these. And I think they tend to rely on a very specific moment in the poem that, when doubted, leads students down a path of doubting everything. And I wanted to share some of those. For example, one student agreed with another student that bats might be imaginary because of the use of private as dreams as dreams and thoughts are both private and in one's head, and show how the speaker is in his head. Now, when I read this, my thought is that if they are imagined, why say that they are private as dreams? That as, that simile is a way of comparing these two items, but with distance. By saying these are not the same, but one helps us understand the other. A metaphor would have allowed us to say that they are private dreams, potentially, if they were real, but they would also allow us to very easily conclude that, oh, okay, maybe these are not. So I think the simile gives us reason to think that actually these are real bats. Another says, the speaker reveals bats as part of his thoughts when he says that he sees them for what they seem, because there is nothing for anyone else to see, as they are only in Wonderlick's head. And I can kind of see the logic here, too. The problem is, though, this is falling into something we talked about in class, a logical fallacy. This is a circular logic, or more specifically called begging the question. The student has relied on the assumption that they're imaginary. And so, when we get to the part where it says they see them for what they seem, they're imaginary because they're imaginary. We're relying on the assumption to justify the conclusion. Now, I wasn't the only one to note some of these things, but those are specific ways that we can kind of fall into these potential traps. The student writes, though, that don't you think that it could be possible for a small colony of bats to be living in a person's house? 
This is especially apparent when the speaker says that they live in the roof peak, enter through a gap. I feel that this could be very plausible. And I think this is exactly the point. For a poem that is so grounded in specific, literal details, the assumption that they're imaginary may be a bit of a reach. But that doesn't mean we can't use these bats to connect to very real, figurative understandings, use them to make sense of ourselves, or the speaker uses them to make sense of themselves. And so let's take a look at how some of those negative associations can get us there. A student writes that bats are often associated with negative things, but the speaker is almost envious of them as he thinks they are lucky. Another writes that the author talks about how some people like bats and others don't, which feels like a metaphor for nature in general. And now we're getting closer. We're seeing how these bats are helping us understand this person's emotions and also helping us look at the world in a way that feels honest. And lots of students explored how these real bats can help us to reveal the speaker. One writes that the speaker is very open with his emotions on bats, like when he states, I hear them scratch in darkness, they chop and hazard through the sky, and later, I see them for what they seem, timid, we, happy, or lucky. He's not trying to hide his potentially controversial feelings about bats, he's rather trying to bring his feelings to a wider audience. A number of students built off this quote with another writing that the bats reminded them of their life, and therefore the speaker portrayed their emotions onto the bat. Student goes on to say that the description of the bats helps us understand the speaker more. Also, Mark Wanderlich uses bats as a way to describe his thinking. He explains how at dusk they fly out, implying that his best time for thinking is at night. Which is kind of cool, this idea that the bats are connected with when he is feeling most alive. I mean, he is awake to see them, of course. The student says that I agree with the idea of the narrator using the bats to cope with loneliness. When the narrator describes the hot chamber that the bats are in, it conveys that he is unhappy or stifled by his environment and uses the bats as an escape. And this is really clever, too. It isn't that the bats are Im imaginary. It isn't that he is himself living in a hot chamber. But it may be that he's choosing details that reflect his own experiences or his emo own emotional state. Finally, the student writes, that the bats and the dark environment represent being misunderstood, as is the speaker. Bats are generalized as scary little creatures, and the poem states the bats chop and hazard through the sky, allowing the bats to seem more aggressive. When Wonderlick could have written glide or soar, and more accurately presented people's perception of them. And this is exactly it. The speaker chooses which words to use. And even if it's an accurate description, each one carries connotation. Do you use the words that reflect the negative associations, the mistrust of the animal? Or do you use those that reveal something else? I really think that this is a great way of exploring these little creatures. And so let's go from looking at how it reveals the speaker to also showing how the, the selections, the structure, things like that might reveal the speaker's relationship to their own space. Student writes, the detailed description convey a peaceful scenery. At dusk, they flight out, dip into inverted arcs. Another writes that visual imagery describes everything as it is, not as people's fears. Another says, trying to emphasize how he finds the ugly in nature beautiful still. Which, I like that, that's very sweet. We can also look at how the speaker portrays their relationship of the speaker to the bats. One writes that the bats hanging around the old Dutch house sounds like a fairy tale cottage. What a beautiful setting. At the poem's end, they are still minding their own merry little business, just like a next-door neighbor. The author is appeased with, and maybe even likes, 
having the bats around. Another writes that the poem, The Bats, by Mark Wunderlich, explores how someone's joy can come in many forms. The adjectives convey the value the bats add to the speaker's life, portraying them as delicate and exuberant. Another points to timid specifically to suggest how it could mean that they are harmless and fragile. One notes that since they scare some but not him, and that the stanza break between some and him, that presence of distance, it's used to convey that even though the bats are normally rejected by the public, they are welcomed in his home, which I adore talking about structure and stanza breaks and creating meaning from them. Ah, oh, it's a delight. The student writes that they live in the roof peak, enter through a gap, which is more like forcing their way in, and it may suggest that these bats are unwelcome, but the speaker shifts their tone, creates more of an acceptance from the speaker through his internal rhyme. And this idea of rhyme serving a function is not lost on others as well. One comments on how rhyme such as night and flight creates a tone. They then commented how the bats feel safe. I'm not sure if these ideas are specifically connected, but it seems reasonable to me that the rhymes create a more playful, welcoming attitude towards the bats. A student writes that when the author says, I see them for what they seem, we notice a conclusive or satisfied feeling between the author and the bats being described. The author has a place in his heart for the bats, and the place seems relaxed and content. Another agrees that the poem shows the bats aren't monsters, it portrays them as wonderful. The author closes by saying that the bats are as private as dreams. Dreams are usually wonderful, private memories that make you smile as you sleep. I believe that in the poem, Wonderlich conveys the idea that bats are as wonderful as dreams. And along this note, one last. A student writes that the narrator feels comforted by the routine of the bats living in his house. He describes sharing his home with the bats. The word share feels comfortable. Despite this, the narrator describes the bats' hot chamber where they rest in their troll faces pinched shut, which provides a darker, agitated air to the environment. The way the bats chop and hazard through the sky also adds to this feeling of chaos and agitation. However, the narrator uses the word share again, demonstrated that he is comfortable with the bats. The author, or the speaker, I suppose, may also be learning something from these little creatures. A student writes that Wonderlick wants his life to be like the bats that live almost as if it's a cycle that repeats. Another says, I don't believe that he calls them a hazard in a negative way. It is more of a form of observation, if not admiration, for how they fly out, dip into inverted arcs to catch what flutters or stings. He sees the way the bats fly as freedom. Being a hazard in the sky comes with that freedom. Student says that I think he is attracted to the bats because he sees them as free. When the speaker talked about the bats in the ceiling, he mentioned how they lived in their filth and no one stopped them from doing that. They can choose. Finally, student says that the bats can be used as a metaphor for his depression and lonely thoughts. However, Wonderlick describes how he is not scared of them. Later in the poem, it explains how the bats scratch in the darkness and scare some and are timid. And note, this is very similar to the ideas we had before that they are imaginary, but instead of treating them as imaginary, the student seems to be suggesting that the selection of the bats, the description of their activities and their home and their relationship to him, all of these things are intentional because they reveal something internal about the speaker. Not that the bats are imaginary, but that the focus and the selection of detail is revealing. And I think this makes perfect sense. This is a good approach. Finally, some students went with the literal, and I'm so glad the students did that with this one, talking about bats and their habitat. 
One writes that the author portrays the bats as creatures that are intricately connected to their surroundings, relying on them for survival. Through the use of vivid imagery and metaphor, Wonderlick highlights the delicate balance between the bats and their habitat. And the student later notes that people, too, are part of this balance. And the writes that the speaker says that the sunlight stops their flight, which signifies to readers that bats have a complex relationship with their environment. Which, quick note, I love this. If you could ever identify complexity, complex relationships, complex connections with environment or other people or actions or history, whatever, super cool. Although, if you can, try to identify what makes it so complex. What are the elements that seem to be pushing up against each other? Another writes that he also does humanize them, saying that the sunlight stops their flight, indicating that even an animal like the bat has a weakness, and maybe, it seems, suggesting he has his own. A student says that the speaker shows an introspective view of life as comparable with the bat's natural instincts and actions. Maybe they have to retreat at times. And my last note from a student is that the author shows the idea that bats are not scary monsters, but rather creatures that have unique lives. The author describes the environment of the bats as stitched up in their ammonia reek and how sunlight stops their flight drives them into their hot chamber, showing us the bats don't have the perfect home. When they are out, they have fun by flying out, dipping into inverted arcs, showing us the bats have a playful side. He sees the bats' behavior as timid, we happy or lucky, and can attach human qualities to that, to finding joy when you finally escape into the outside. Just wonderful work, everyone. I'm so very impressed. It was a joy to go through all of these. Our next poem is Special Problems in Vocabulary by Tony Hoagland. We're still in the comfortable structure of lines and stanzas again, and we see a return of tercets, which is the technical name for three-line stanzas, as we see in the last four stanzas of this poem. Tercets are not the only type of stanza we see here, however. Most of the poem is made up of stanzas with four lines in them. Four-line stanzas are called quatrains. You don't need to use either of these terms, but I personally find it very interesting that the poem begins with quatrains and transitions into tercets. It changes. It shifts. This difference in stanza length may be very useful for our secret passphrase this week, which is shift. We're using this word because it is a pretty important part of poetry. There are other names for it, such as volta, V-O-L-T-A, if you are feeling fancy, but a shift is a transition in the poem. Shifts can be from one tone to another, or from one perspective or subject to another, or from a problem to a solution, or a number of other things. Certainly tonal shifts are most common, but if you can identify how one portion of a poem seems to be working together, and find a place where that changes into something else, that moment of transition is called a shift. One thing I really like about this poem is how ordinary its subject matter is. There are two ordinary things happening in this poem, or maybe I should call them ordinary spaces. The first ordinary space is the English classroom, where we learn about grammar and vocabulary. The second ordinary place is much bigger. It's life. Friendships, marriages, bathroom, mirrors, kitchen windows, all the ordinary places where we do ordinary things. I'm intrigued by how the poem explores the way in which the lessons in the English classroom aren't quite capable of fully expressing the difficulty of life. And yet the poem exists, partially, because of a tradition of English language arts. Regardless, I imagine students will find a lot to relate to in this poem. I know I do. Because of how relatable this poem is, our writing task is going to be about exploring universal subjects. Themes. I want your topic sentence to include a claim about a theme topic that you believe is present in this poem. 
there are lots to choose from, and many are words directly found in the poem, like friendship, accidents, marriage, adventure, and mystery. There are even more that aren't stated exactly, but are definitely there, like loss, disgust, body image, incompleteness, nature, and hope. And there are more that I haven't even mentioned. Keep in mind that this needs to be a claim, something you can try to prove. Do not just say that the poem talks about a theme topic. Argue that it says something specific about it. If you're feeling up to it, try writing a theme statement. Once you've made your claim, though, be sure your paragraph tries to prove it with evidence and reasoning. Here is Special Problems in Vocabulary by Tony Hoagland, read by me. Special Problems in Vocabulary by Tony Hoagland There is no single particular noun for the way a friendship stretch over time grows thin, then one day snaps with a popping sound, no verb for accidentally breaking a thing while trying to get it open. A marriage, for example. No particular phrase for losing a book in the middle of reading it and therefore never learning the end. There is no expression, in English at least, for avoiding the sight of your own body in the mirror, for disliking the touch of the afternoon sun, for walking into the flatlands and dust that stretch out before you after your adventures are done. No adjective for gradually speaking less and less, because you have stopped being able to say the one thing that would break your life loose from its grip. Certainly no name that one could imagine for the aspen tree outside the kitchen window, in spade-shaped leaves spinning on their stems, working themselves into a pale green vegetable blur. No word for waking up one morning and looking around, because the mysterious spirit that drives all things seems to have returned and is on your side again. A paragraph responding to this prompt is due on the Friday that ends this week, and your two replies to other students are due the Wednesday after. Students, be sure to use the word shift in some form in your responses, as this is your secret passphrase. You can use the word Volta instead if you're feeling fancy. Remember that the person talking is not necessarily the author, so keep using the speaker, as I have seen so many of you doing. For our writing task, write a claim about a theme topic that is present in the poem. Please do not use the words theme or topic or anything like that. If it's a theme topic, I'm pretty confident I'll know. Don't forget to make use of our previous writing tasks for quality writing, including a claim with a clear what and how, Provide a basic summary before you start exploring evidence. Use the poet's last name by itself once you've used their full name and consider the variety of your sentence beginnings and their lengths. If you are using multiple quotes in a single sentence again, keep them short and use brackets where needed. And we have line and stanza breaks, so remember to use a single forward slash to indicate a line break and a double forward slash to indicate a stanza break. If you enjoy this podcast, have suggestions, want to provide a reading, or would like the class to direct their eyes toward a particular poem or poetic device, leave a comment on LeidenTeaches.com or on Twitter. I am at LeidenTeaches. The content of this podcast is used as a companion to class instructional activities, and ownership of these texts remain with their stated authors. Thank you for joining me for episode 70 of this podcast. I hope that between now and the next time you hear from me, discover and savor a few things that you yourself find quite excellent. Mm -hmm.